Hello and welcome back to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And what have we got coming up on the episode today? Well, our main topic is actually an interview I gave to a PhD student in Bristol a few weeks ago about nectar production in plants. Yeah, we've been really looking forward to releasing this one. Really have. And our native plant of the week is the shrubby sinkfoil or the potentilla, which uh, Ben will be delivering a bit later on. Nice. But shall we start with what we've seen this week in our garden and around? Yeah, we've seen lots more mothy action. One of my favourites, the vapour moth caterpillars are out. And I've seen things all over Facebook and various friends actually have been asking me, what on earth is this caterpillar? Because Yeah, this really is the is. one people always send to us, isn't oh it? Oh my God. It's like it's, the punk moth. We call it the punk caterpillar. Yeah. And it's also got a great common name when it, its moth is the rusty tussock or the vapour. Mm, nice. I love that one. Yeah, it looks like it's got like a punk hairdo, hasn't it? Like a Mohican and it's got a crazy moustache on the front as well. It's just mad. Definitely look that one up. And I've also seen a scarlet tiger moth which this is really interesting because actually its range has really increased and this is believed to be because of climate change. So it used to be basically down in the southwest only and its range has been massively increasing up north. So to have one in Nottingham, I didn't realise how special that was until I properly looked it up and it was just sitting on um, a geranium leaf, just chilling out, drying out. Yeah, in the city, wasn't it? Really, really beautiful moth, like green, black, sort of shimmery with creamy and, and yellow spots over it with red underwing, which it flashes is sort of like to wear people off what have you seen so last time we said it was the march of the ladybirds and i think all the flies have come out in the last couple of weeks including the hoverflies so i've seen loads of interesting what i would just normally call a fly and um, i took some photos and one it was really common i've just never seen it before it was called a, a yellow dung fly which eats poo basically yeah. but it's um they were loads in one of our gardens and it's got hairy sort of furry thick legs it looked really cool and um yeah i learned the word coprophagus which means insects that eat poo basically nice. yeah because we talked about monophagus and polyphagus last time so mono just means only eats one thing really and poly is the opposite eats lots of different things so coprophagus eats poo yeah yeah (laughs) and when i put the when i found out about that word and i put it into google apparently loads of really beautiful dainty butterflies do it as well and we actually saw this on a belated episode we just watched of um spring watch didn't we yeah with orange tip butterflies the adults actually yeah going down and sucking on some poo (laughs) lovely yeah so um, but then aside from that Lots and lots of hoverflies have come out recently, including one which I can recognise, and it's called the pellucid hoverfly, Mm. or the pellucid fly, and it's massive. It's like the size of a large bee, and it's, yeah, it's blackened, or sort of cream and black, with black spots on its wings as well. It's really, really striking. And I've seen loads of them. I don't know if they're mating, or if they were males defending a territory or what, but they were really aggressive yeah they were just because they they sort of hover at head height and you can see four or five different ones hovering around you and every now and again they'd be hovering completely still and then they just go for one another but yeah i don't know if that's 
that's the mating behavior or not so yeah if anybody knows then just do write in and tell us yeah we were getting quite distracted when ben's dad came and visited on saturday this this weekend gone by all of the hover and various other fly activity in our garden which sounds really horrible like look, think a lot of people really don't understand flies and their diversity and their importance in a garden as well but i think your dad we we kept interrupting our conversation just to go oh what was that yeah. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> distracting after a while so sorry graham <laughs> Before we move on to the news, I just wanted to ask a question of our listeners, and that is, when was the last time you complimented someone on their beautiful planted up front garden? The reason why I'm thinking about this is because, well, first of all, in episode three, we mentioned an RHS report, which purported that gardens were becoming greener front gardens in particular and this was going this was going against the the tide which i think we all sort of recognize of actually people more often than not paving over their front gardens so we found that report quite interesting and this just got me thinking that people do plant up their front gardens and and, you know walking around nottingham i've seen some really beautiful ones but when do people actually compliment other people on their front gardens to let them know that they're appreciating it because obviously the wildlife appreciate appreciates it but people also appreciate it and actually it was also spurred on this thought by my friend claire davis who lives in barnes in london and there's a community group down there that actually sent letters to all the residents that had lovely front gardens just saying thank you and i just thought that was such a lovely idea yeah it's just really encouraging isn't it and we actually the the planters we've talked about at the front of our house just on the on the path quite a few people recently have gone past there and and said how nice they look because they're in full flower now of course so and because we remember we actually remembered to water them this year like previous years yeah no yeah it's just really nice it's encouraging when other people you know appreciate the fact that you've done something for because it's for the street as well isn't it you know it's much nicer to look at it when you're walking up and down yeah so if anyone can just do one thing in the next couple of weeks then if you just you know have a neighbor with a nicely planted up front garden just let them know like yeah it's very easy We, we actually did it just this week as well to someone that we drove past with a beautiful cornflower like little wildflower meadow patch outside there I mean it's a postage stamp wasn't it in terms of size but it looked amazing and they happened to be outside so we kind of did a drive-by thank you and I think they looked a bit at first shocked (laughs) and like oh god what's going on yeah they looked a bit confused when somebody leaned out of a white van started (laughs) shouting at them (laughs) and then and then they appreciated it so it's fine (laughs) eventually it took them a second to clock into the fact you were talking about the wildflowers (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) So going on to the news, are you going to do yours first? No, I think you should. I've talked a lot. Well, mine's very bad news. Oh, okay. Yeah, do yours first because mine... (laughs) Oh, wait. No, mine's not great either. Okay, we'll just... We'll just get through it. Okay. It's important anyway. <laughs> Who's going first? You go first. Okay. This is new, brand new news to me. And I only heard about this from the UK Wildlife Podcast. Did a special episode about specifically about this, which only came out a day or two ago. And this sounds a bit technical, but it's going to have massive ramifications. I don't know if you've heard about this actually, Ellie. But basically, I every have. five years, an organisation called the JNCC, which is the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, which is made up of all the individual countries organizations that deal with nature so in the uk it's natural england there's national resources wales 
sorry, Natural Resources Wales and then Nature Scott as well. They get together every five years and they talk about what animals should be protected by law. And plants. And plants as well, yeah. So this is the Schedules 5 and Schedules 8 as part of the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So plants and animals are included in these schedules and then they're protected. Now, the thing is, normally when they do one of these reviews, people send in information and they say there's you know some evidence to say that this or that species is declining in number maybe we should protect it before it's too late before it gets any worse so basically proactive yeah yep. this sort of approach has led to turnarounds in lots of different species like the mountain hare some different newt species as well so what the jncc have done is they've unilaterally decided on some new criteria for what they use to decide what species they're going to tell the government that they should protect And they've made a massive change that's just gone under the radar. And we've seen nothing about this in the news. I I would just add, I did see something just today. I just happened to be trawling The Guardian, but it was something like the 20th uh, news item down just in their environment page. So I don't know if it ever made front page online. Okay, well, we're going to tell you what you should do about this at the end, but definitely help spread the word about this. So basically, the change in this criteria is that they're only going to recommend to the government that a species should be protected when it's actually in critical risk of extinction. That takes off the protected list loads and loads and loads of species that are currently protected. So that includes the common frog, common toad, palmate and smooth newts, lots of different reptile slow worms and grass snakes are all going to come off this list of protection. And the only things that are going to be left are things that count under the IUCN red list, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They have a red list of things that are critically endangered. Either that or European protected species, um, which is an EU thing, but we're going to carry on using the list. So unless it's on either of those two lists these species are not going to be protected anymore. Which is absolutely nuts because nothing's changed in terms of their decline. Exactly. And as you say, we know that something's wrong. It just yeah. means that we're not going to be doing anything about it. So unless organisations can prove to the government that these species are critically endangered, all legal restrictions are going to be taken away, which means that you can kill these species, you could pick them up and sell them, in a garden centre which is like just the most crazy thing you could go into your local garden centre with ponds and they could be selling common toads and common frogs that they've just picked out of a pond nearby loads of different things like if you're going to be building a housing estate you know lots of these species are protected it doesn't have to be great crested newts there are protections already for palmate newts and for slow worms and grass snakes and all that protection is going to be gone. They can just go onto the site and kill everything perfectly legally. This is just an absolute unmitigated disaster for wildlife. Now, people need to know about this because basically the JNCC have said that they have made the decision and it's too late and they're not going to do anything about it. And they did this without the consultation of all these organisations that we talk about all the time. People like Frog Life and, you know, Butterfly, um, Conservation. Butterfly Conservation, the Wildlife Trust, all of them who have recently written an open letter to the government and to the JNCC to, well, to express their absolute dismay that this is happening and to say that this has to stop. So what they say is that lots of species that they know are declining, they just don't have the data to prove that they are critically endangered yet. And so what the government has basically said is they're, the government are going to rely on all these organisations to put all the time and effort into 
national studies, constant studies of every single species to know whether the the populations are going up or down. And as we've described on previous episodes, ecology is hard. It takes a long time. It's very expensive. There just aren't that many trained ecologists around. The data simply isn't there. So when the data isn't there, they can't get on the red list. And if they can't get on the red list, then they're not protected. Yeah, it's just, it's basically what's gone on before. The less you know about something, the less protected it becomes, and the the more damage you can do to the population. It's willful ignorance, I'd say, yeah, on the part that's of exactly the government. Right. That's exactly right. Because then things like mountain hares can be persecuted, and it's worse the because moorland. they're actually backtracking. So the protections were there, and they've so oh god, I just can't even. Yeah, this really is very sad. Yeah, and, it, it's just, it's just basically we've only just found out about this now. These organisations, they don't know how bad it's going to be because they don't know yet what is going to be on this new list. But the Amphibian and Reptile Groups UK, ARG UK, have put together this letter that they've sent to the government Mm. and they have also got a petition to go to Parliament about this. All I can say is follow the links. They'll all be in the show notes. Read the letter that ARG UK put together, which gives you much more detail on what's actually going on, the exact um, schedules that are changing, what species are going to be taken off. Um, And then contact your local MP. There's a letter on there that you can copy, you know, a standard letter that you can send to your MP, sign the petition to the government, and just support anybody who's trying to make a noise about this. And we're certainly going to be promoting it on twitter on facebook and writing to our mp and writing to our mp because i just cut i you know i just don't have words basically to describe how bad this is no and this is from a government who's got the environment bill going through parliament oh, at the moment smoke and bloody which mirrors, is, isn't it yeah it's just, just complete rubbish they so, say one thing and do completely the opposite in yeah. e- pretty much every way <laughs> yeah i mean basically what the government is expecting now is you can kill anything build on anything, do whatever you want until there's only a handful of a species left and then they're going to protect it. Yeah. By which time, a lot of the research says it's already too late because you've got fragmented populations, you've got, you don't have genetic diversity in the population so they're almost, they're much harder to protect, they're much harder to reintroduce into other areas. I think the term race to the bottom springs to my mind in terms of like where we're actually heading. Yeah, and this does relate to gardens because, again, these aren't species that are critically endangered on some nature reserve somewhere. These are common, well, I say common, they're not that common because they're declining, but they're species you will find in your gardens. Things like grass snakes and hedgehogs and these species are are ones that we all have an interest in protecting. And, yeah, please just... Please do what you can, basically. So that's yeah. my really, really bad news for today. I don't really know how to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we really would appreciate, uh, you know, on behalf of the wildlife out there, if you could just take even just one action, it would be amazing. So yeah, my news is also not great, but it, well, I guess it's more of a an interesting point. So it's less bad than Ben's news. Let's, let's call it that. <laughs> And it's a report that's recently come out by the British Trust for Ornithology, the BTO. And specifically, it's a paper by S. Gillings or Gillings and C. Scott. And they recently published a paper about the impact of artificial light on nocturnal migrant birds. So artificial light at night, which is also shortened quite funnily, I think, to Alan. So I'm sorry if you're called (laughs) Alan and I'm just about to refer to you in a negative sense for the next couple of minutes. Naughty Alan. Naughty Alan. 
It's been found that it does, uh, no surprises, disrupt the movement patterns of migratory birds and particularly those that do so at night. And actually in the UK, 80% of our summer migrants do actually move after dark. And this is just something that they've evolved to do for lots of reasons, one of which being there are less predators around at that time. That's amazing. I knew some did because they covered it on Spring Watch actually, didn't they, last year. But 80% of Indeed. birds. That's yes. amazing. And actually about 40 to 150 million birds are estimated to cross the North Sea at night every autumn, which is just mad, like huge number of birds. Now in the US, it's actually documented via various studies that Alan confuses <laughs> and disorients. I don't know if I should keep calling it that. <laughs> that Alan confuses and disorients migratory birds, which can include lighthouses, oil platforms, and also tall buildings. Of course, in the US, there's a lot of tall buildings. And it's less of a problem in the UK, but the studies just weren't there until now to actually say, well, what impact is is this happening over here? So in 2019, between September and mid-November, a variety of bird watchers across Cambridgeshire recorded the calls of nocturnally migrating thrushes. They used specific sound recording equipment and they did this in their gardens and they specifically looked out for these migrating thrushes, like I say, and that's including the redwing, blackbird and song thrush. And the gardens were all distributed along a gradient of nocturnal illumination from the bright lights of the city of Cambridge, this all happened in Cambridgeshire, out to the darkest around. So you imagine the further you get from Cambridge, the darker your little village becomes. And the findings were that thrush call rates were up to five times higher over the brightest areas, so over the city. And the study explained this by the birds being basically attracted to that light. So they're flying around looking to migrate and they're just attracted to where the light is. And that would account for this uh, you know, increase in, in calling. However, it's also been postulated that the thrushes actually call more when they're disorientated as well, because it's a form of their or it's a way that they actually call to each other to kind of you know, locate where they are yeah. in re- in relation to each other. So there's also that element that they may be calling more simply because they're actually disorientated. So we've basically talked about uh, not lighting up your garden before in various episodes, actually. Or just turn, turning your lights off when you go to bed. Turn your lights off when you go to bed. You don't need those fairy lights on all the time. You don't need security lights that are on all the time. Just put if, them on a sensor. Put them on a sensor. And I was thinking about this, and actually a lot of councils have moved to sort of better quality street lighting as well over the years. And actually they've, they've made sure that the lights point downwards rather than just actually illuminating the sky. They're still not perfect, but they're better. And I was wondering that whether it would be worth actually also contacting MPs if you have, if you're in touch with your MP about this kind of stuff, just to highlight this, this plight basically might be another useful thing to do. But the thing that we can all definitely do is to switch off those fairy lights when we finished having our barbecues and parties in our gardens. Yeah, exactly. If, and when the summer comes back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no barbecues here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Moving on to something more positive. To, yeah, to, uh, <laughs> to big ourselves up a bit. Because <laughs> we haven't done this for a while. So we always ask for iTunes reviews because they really help us get into the ears of new listeners. And it's really nice to read them. So thank you very much for everybody yeah. who has given us a review over the last couple of weeks. And so every now and again, we do our 60 seconds of self-congratulation Woo-hoo. just to read out some of the reviews that you've left us online. 
So thank you to Matt JTW. So many interesting tips and facts. The quality of the delivery and content is also really impressive. Such new podcast sounds better than some pods that have been around for years. Look forward to listening to more. Boarded Gothic from the USA said, I just discovered this wonderful podcast. Absolutely love it. We'll be sending a donation for your gear. Great job, Martin. Popper Pig 57 via Podbean said, Entertaining and informative, the dynamic duo, aka Ellie and Ben, are <laughs> breaths of organic and environmental fresh air. You don't know us well enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not fresh. fresh. <laughs> Catsmith 333 from the USA said, I don't know where to begin with all the reasons I find this podcast a delight. Aww. It's educational, certainly, but it also makes me want to explore my garden in a totally different way with my magnifying glass and binoculars also to appreciate it with all my senses including my taste buds inspiring the gardener in all of us Red Fox NCR says interesting educational honest and fun a truly educational podcast which covers all elements of wildlife friendly gardening highly educational and fun to listen to would definitely recommend to friends and others I've started so I'll finish and others who want to feel empowered to do something positive for wildlife thank you you're both amazing and thank Aww. you to all of those people who've given us a review because you are amazing <laughs> <laughs> that was smooth wasn't it <laughs> have you ever considered motivational talking uh, speaking ben well not after my news this week <laughs> oh yeah, yeah no. <laughs> if you want to give us a review like we said you can do it on itunes the links will be in the show notes and you can also give us a review on podbean which is our podcast host excellent so we're going to move on now to our special guest for this podcast yeah we've talked loads about him we sort of uh, revved you all up for this interview i think over the weeks but nick chu was absolutely lovely to talk to we we actually talked for much longer than just the interview he's fascinating and i think he will go very far in the world of ecology and helping wildlife in gardens indeed so we're gonna nip back in time now and join ellie as she describes where she is meeting nick in bristol Hello everyone from a very sunny Bristol where I've come for the weekend to see some friends and while I'm here I'm taking the opportunity to meet a PhD student based here at the University of Bristol who has been doing some really fascinating research into nectar production of flowering plants and we've decided very aptly to meet and chat in a place that apparently is quite close to his heart that is full of wildlife and also lots and lots of plants. It's called the Avon Gorge and the Downs and it's really famous for its botany but also it sits on limestone so you get a really specific array of plants that actually exist here. But actually at the beginning of the last century we stopped grazing this land so humans stopped managing it in the same way and actually what happened was you, where we used to have grassland and lots of thriving very rare plants like the Bristol onion and also the Bristol rockcress by stopping the grazing of the grassland where these plants thrived brambles and other non-native plants like toniaster even started appearing and it smothered all these these grassland species out and what conservation efforts have really focused on since then is to keep that scrub down or at a minimum and they do this by introducing goats here which actually naturally munch down on that vegetation and keep areas open so that these plants can survive i might even go for a little stroll and try and find me some some bristol onion I need to look up to see exactly what it looks like. All that leaves me to do is go and find my interviewee. 
Hi Nick, nice Hi, to meet nice you. Nice to be here. Really fantastic for you to come and talk with me today on your day off. <laughs> yeah, lovely to be here in the nice green space in Bristol. This is one of your favourite spots actually, isn't it? You said that you came here quite a lot during lockdown. Yeah, I think particularly the part of Bristol I live in, there's a lot of access to nice, very flower-rich green spaces, which in sort of, yeah, May last year when it was amazing weather, but you couldn't meet anyone or do very much. This is a 15-minute walk for me, oh, so it's absolutely gee, perfect. Absolutely perfect, yeah. Better than what we had, but then we were gardening, so we were lucky in carrying on yeah. as sort of normal, Not as normal work, as it could working be. Working on a computer in a basement flat wasn't oh, cutting it for me. Scientists, I do feel sorry, <laughs> I know a lot of scientist friends actually from university, and I remember them telling me about the, the days and weeks and months they used to spend in, it's always basements, why are scientists always put in basements? I don't know, it's just a constant <laughs> battle to find houseplants that will live with only <laughs> artificial lighting. <laughs> yeah, so what we normally do with guests is to start with wildlife sightings, so okay. things you've seen out and about. Obviously, you're, you are out and about quite a lot. Have you seen anything interesting recently? Oh, I saw a bee orchid yesterday. <gasps> That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, wasn't looking for it at all. I was on a really intensively managed farmland in Gloucester, like a beef farm doing field work, just ryegrass field after ryegrass field, and then a couple of tiny fallow patches full of clovers and buttercups that I guess had just been left to their own devices. And uh, yeah, just sort of knelt down to catch a bee and saw a lovely bee orchid next to it. That is amazing. So that well, was yeah, very I'm good, jealous. very recent sighting. Very jealous of that. <laughs> any animals i mean at the moment it's mostly bees so a lot of really interesting uh, cuckoo bees particularly um, i'm starting to notice them a lot more ichneumonid wasps just all the kind of stuff that when you really get your eye and you start to see kind of life everywhere that otherwise you just wouldn't notice it's kind of what i love about field work you just constantly got your eyes peeled yeah. to see what you can find that's what we said uh, in the last episode we said because we've just been on holiday and we met up with neil from the uk wildlife podcast and it mm. took us about two hours to walk 400 meters because we were <laughs> looking at insects so when you scale your world down to theirs mm. you just see so much more and it's yeah it's fascinating you can spend a lot of time doing that yeah <laughs> and, and in field work i've got this balance of i need to collect data but i also want to <laughs> i want to stop and pause and look at things that aren't to do with my data so yeah that's probably not so good you can't spend yeah two hours walking 400 meters <laughs> so yeah well that kind of leads me nicely on to what you're doing for your phd because uh we've talked about you before in a yep. very previous episode <laughs> and yeah your research is very really fascinating but i thought you might want to introduce it yourself thanks yeah i so my phd focuses on um, pollinators in urban landscapes so looking at food supply in towns and cities so so far i've spent a lot of time looking on residential gardens because they provide a lot of a pollinators uh, food supply um, and I've been doing some things like making comparisons between rural landscapes and urban landscapes. And I just find it absolutely fascinating how much incredibly good foraging habitat there is in urban spaces that may not even be where you expect it to be. Like for my fieldwork, I often spend time around the back of a Morrison's car park with an Escalonia <laughs> hedge or something completely covered in bumblebees. And at the same time, there's a large green playing field that has nothing in it. So it's some of these weird sort of apparent contradictions about where pollinators find habitats and the way in which in urban spaces which on the one hand are like as completely human altered as you can get um, and apparently to the sort of untrained eye I guess kind of devoid of life but actually they could maybe even be much better than our rolling green countryside that a lot of people cherish and, and protect as greenbelt and it's some of those weird contradictions and almost controversies that I find particularly fascinating and I guess the positive message that you know even when you've completely drastically changed the landscape you can still um, do things to help wildlife within it. I was actually going to ask you this because that's one thing I, I, we've mentioned before. We saw you give a talk at the um, Zoological Society in London yeah. for the Wildlife Gardening Forum. It was a couple of years ago now. And we, well, we loved your talk, which is why we've got you on today. But 
I was struck by your positivity, I guess. And I guess this topic does, it, it lends itself to that positivity because you're, like you just say, if you, most people would look at a Morrison's car park and don't <laughs> think it's good for wildlife and that we've ruined some, something mm. somehow by putting it there. But yeah, it's a positive message, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think as ecologists go, I'm reasonably pragmatic. I don't have a particularly negative view of a lot of introduced species. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably kind of, okay, this is the status quo now. How can we you know, make it the best it can be rather than let's think about reversing this completely and turning this back to nature-rich habitat, which obviously not everywhere can happen. So that's something when I was looking at PhD projects, there were obviously a lot on decline and biodiversity decline and all this kind of stuff. And it's really important that people do research that. But for me, this PhD just immediately looked to something a little bit unusual, a little bit interesting, a little bit the kind of not traditional, you know, gardens, urban landscapes are not traditionally studied by ecologists. And some people might, I don't know, almost turn their nose up at them as not not proper uh, natural habitat but actually it's just as natural as a hedgerow which is an inherently man-made habitat or um, you know kind of some of our grassland that's managed in a particular state by livestock there's nothing particularly less natural about um, a lot of our urban habitats and that's what I find really interesting it's just ultimately it's is it good for biodiversity or not not some sort of moral issue of whether it should be there so that's what I find really fascinating about this work I mean it's yeah really fascinating and I think you know data is our friend isn't it in terms of knowing what is the best thing to do in the future as well and I guess your research is going to hopefully feed into that more and more yeah and particularly with some of the more controversial topics like non-native species things like that I just yeah I very much like to collect the data to know what is the case rather than necessarily telling people which direction to go in with that data it's just you know being a bit more objective as a scientist I guess and saying you know our garden's really good for pollinators are they better than farmland that doesn't mean we should turn farmland all into residential areas or anything like that but it's just interesting to actually just understand the differences so when i phoned you as well recently you were out with a net so Mm. i thought you might just talk a little bit about what method you've used to collect the data and well what is the data actually that you're collecting yeah and then yeah how you're doing it yeah i was actually sort of around the back of a children's play area in a park in bath as you do with a net (laughs) at about 10 in the morning Um, without being arrested yeah without being arrested (laughs) Um, yeah so so far my PhD is focused on plants particularly so looking at nectar supply so my first year I basically just went through as many plants as I could possibly measure stuck little tubes in them extracted nectar measured the sugar concentration and just got like a value for every species you know like rose is this sage is this whatever it is and then I've been using that data to combine with some kind of flower count data to basically say how many you know kilograms grams whatever of nectar are there in different habitats amazing the fieldwork at the moment is actually the first time in my phd i've directly been doing stuff with pollinators which is a bit late because it is actually a pollinator related phd so i've been going out and catching bees to do some subsequent dna work okay Um, so the idea of this year's fieldwork is basically are there the populations of one of the bumblebees the buff-tailed bumblebee is it larger in urban areas or farmland because if you just go and count them when they're sitting on flowers there's a lot you don't know you don't know how far they've been drawn into that patch you don't know if they're from the same colony so I've been doing some DNA work to basically work out how many colonies there are in these areas. A, f- a friend of mine, Tom Timberlake, he's done some work on, on farmland particularly, but even within farmland you might get small areas of garden, like around the, the farmhouse. And he found a correlation between colony density and the area of garden in a range of something like 1% to 6% garden. Um, now in urban areas, the amount of garden might be like 50% of the space. So given there is so much garden in some of these urban spaces, I've got reason to believe you might find higher populations of bumblebees in urban spaces and farmland but obviously we 
kind of need to wait months for the data to Indeed. come out. Indeed, yes, that is the nature of a PhD, which is why I never did one, actually, because I don't think I'm patient oh, enough. Oh, you have to be so patient. <laughs> so pollinators is your next stage of your research, but mm. in terms of the nectar production, which is what you've been looking at, you know, quantifying with your tiny pipettes, <laughs> um, have you come across which plants are like the superstars, if you like, especially in a garden setting? So for our listeners who are listening because they're wildlife gardeners like what could they put in their garden that is the absolute best mm. so as, as with evergreen science it's a little bit it's a little bit more complicated than just saying how which flowers produce the most nectar because obviously there's this trade-off between does a does a plant have a few large flowers each of which produces much nectar or many small flowers right yeah um so i guess what you're interested in is within a certain space of the garden how much nectar um so the contrast for example something like a ceanothus bush you've got many tens of thousands possibly even hundreds of thousands of tiny tiny flowers that scaled up produce loads of nectar but individually not very much versus um fuchsia or one of the salvias one of the big tubular flowers lots of nectar per flower but not as many um there's so many out there it's hard to kind of yeah give you a short list but the asteraceae the the daisy family i think if you're getting the open flowering ones not the you know not the big fluffy dahlias but the kind of ones with the open accessible nectaries they can produce a huge amount because again they've got that cluster of many many flowers in one yep. place makes it easier for a pollinator to consume lots of nectar in one space and they're more generalist uh, you know the generalist pollinators can actually access them as well because they don't need the long tongues yeah generally well, so. so something like a globe thistle because the the tubes on that are quite long so generally you'll just see the honeybees and the bumblebees and that but pretty much the other asteraceae the other thistles and um sunflowers and you know all sorts you'll see all kind of different solitary bees yeah. hoverflies flies butterflies all sorts of different things so, that, so having having some of the daisy family is always a fantastic kind of generalist one and then sort of the flip side is the more bumblebee specialized flowers things like salvia penstemon those kind of plants that are more the long-tongued bumblebees that have a lot of you know a lot of nectar within a single flower um, mm-hmm. they can also be fantastic i guess yeah i guess the key as with everything is a diversity of different flower shapes to suit different pollinators i was going to ask about Obviously, some flowers, I'm thinking about borage in particular, is really well known for refilling its nectar source yeah. really, really quickly. Obviously, your research accounted for that as well. How, how, did, how did you actually account for that? Did you have to measure multiple I mean, times? My, my research basically didn't really account for that. Okay. It's, one of the, it's one of the kind of, I guess, potential limitations in it. Right. So I was looking at the amount that had built up over a 24-hour period using a, a bag, like a, a net bag, over the flower to stop the pollinators drinking. Now, if the pollinators were to continually visit that flower throughout that 24-hour period, then obviously it could refill many times. In terms of data at like an entire land-use garden park type level, you've got so many hundreds of species involved that I think the differences will quite nicely kind of average out in refill rate. But if you're looking at specific plants and what is the best for pollinators, then my data is limited in that it says in a 24-hour period the plant has this much nectar, but it doesn't look at refill rate. Um, for a variety of reasons, just it's it would i would be able to do far fewer species if i got right. that in-depth level of detail um, and some flowers to actually get the nectar out you really need to start snipping it apart and yeah and basically you wouldn't be able to measure the refill rate yeah. but it's yeah it's, it's a really important factor so things like um comfrey and borage for example refill very quickly so you potentially got a lot of nectar out of them something like fuchsia i don't know the data it has a vast amount of nectar in the flower but it's bird pollinated, so it might not be evolved for the same frequency of visits as insect pollinated flowers. Okay. So it may well not refill at the same rate. Um, but I just, we, there's just so much just we still don't know, know basically. No. Yeah. Well, I think 
that is as, as important as the what we do know because something we constantly try and get across is that while we're giving so our podcast is all about getting the science across which is why we're talking to you yep. the actual <laughs> scientists it's really important to recognize that quite a lot of this stuff is still in its infancy and it's really easy to be prescriptive about these things so i did just ask you which is the garden superstar which would have been a prescriptive <laughs> answer but you quite rightly didn't give me a prescriptive answer because the fact is that it's more complex than that and i think yeah we want to i think nuance is everything in this and so yeah i think that's a, a good good thing that you recognize the limitations mm. of what you need to look at but also the opportunity for someone else to do another phd exactly and as, as a phd student or a scientist you become more and more aware of what you don't know and you end up i think typically you end a phd with more questions than you started <laughs> you know much more questions than answers how um, many more I'm, years will you be studying then <laughs> i mean you could do it forever but at some point you have to move on with your life <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to accept that my research has its limitations, but it's it's a first step in a relatively new area uh, for more people to, to build on. Yeah. On the garden superstars, were there any plants that in the other direction that you were surprised at how little nectar they provided for pollinators? A lot of the standard bedding plants you buy from your garden centres, like uh, pelagonium and impatiens and, and some of those flowers, are very, very low. But I guess, I don't know, to me that was quite expected and you never really see them visited. One that was quite interesting, which in, I guess, sort of March-April time is a, a stunning shrub to have, absolutely ablaze with colour, people even have hedges of it, is uh, Forsythia. You never see anything on it. I don't know if you've ever seen anything on I it. Was, I, do you know what? It wasn't one of my questions, but now you've mentioned it, we said this just this year. Okay. And I, I said, well, maybe Nick will know, <laughs> is Forsythia good for wildlife? Because you're right, there, I've never seen anything on it, mm. actually. It's... It's yeah, it's so stunning, and it you'd you'd want it to be good, but no, it's um. I mean, the measurements I got for it was something like five micrograms of nectar, whereas the good plants are in the hundreds or thousands. So okay. a shrub of that compared to you know a flowering current shrub is um, like two hundred times less nectar. Yeah, it's, it's radically different. There's basically nothing. And I think I once saw a fly resting on it and probably not feeding <laughs> anyway. So no, it's it's and whether it's I mean it's a particular hybrid, whether it's um the horticultural modification that's left it with no nectar or whether it naturally where it comes from has no nectar i don't know but that's one where yeah it's so beautiful you want it to have you want it to be good for wildlife but at least on the nectar side it's definitely not and it flowers early as well so another reason Mm. why you again you want it to be good because you think well there's not much else going on at that time that's one to avoid (laughs) okay that is really interesting (laughs) at least at least from a pollinator's perspective yeah indeed no well we are uh, big fans of Kate Bradbury, who I think yep. is, uh, most people would know is the queen of wildlife gardening. <laughs> and yeah, she she has this mantra that if she doesn't see things eating, you know, whether it's the pollen, nectar, or mm. the actual leaves of a plant, then she gets rid of it because it's obviously not not doing anything for other things. It's just something there to look at, which isn't as interesting for a wildlife gardener. And that's always a really good way of picking your pollinator-friendly plants. You know, there's the RHS has lists. I've got nectar data, which at some point will you know get incorporated into some sort of public lists and that kind of stuff but also if you're at a garden center and something's buzzing with pollinators trust that they know what they're doing i guess Mm. um (laughs) as far as we know they do know what they're doing so yeah and that actually leads me on to another question which is in terms of the results of your phd obviously what you're talking to us i know you talked at the zoological society for the wildlife gardening forum so the information is in demand if you like because you're already actually being asked to give talks but where do you think your data will actually end up? What will it feed into in the bigger picture? So we're going to do some work with the RHS, um, who are part funding the PhD, so the Royal Horticultural Society. They have 
plant for pollinator lists and I'm going to at some point I'm going to do some work to try and make those lists a little bit more objective scientific rather than perhaps um, you know more like kind of observation and conjecture but it's very hard because there's so many different factors for pollinators um, that make a plant good and you can think about whether it's nectar whether it's pollen which pollinators what time of year all sorts of different factors but definitely feeding the data into that to in some way help inform those lists will be will be a really good thing other than that yeah i mean i'm always keen to do any kind of outreach and talks um, i present at you know, academic conferences where sometimes my research wandering around old ladies gardens seems a little bit <laughs> less scientific than some of the uh, you know bayesian modeling that happens and all that kind <laughs> is of it stuff. only old women's gardens that you go to <laughs> um that was the main demographic during my 2019 field work but it, it does have its uh, tea and tea and biscuit benefits oh yeah um <laughs> and then on the other hand i'm also doing talks to more kind of um friends of the bristol botanic gardens yeah. and people who are much more interested in the data from a kind of yeah how they can manage their gardens rather than a sort of purely academic sense yeah. so definitely i like to with my research i like to span this whole spectrum um to make sure it is applied and it isn't just sitting in dusty journal articles Wow, Nick really knows his stuff there, doesn't he? He really does. Yeah, so just before we go on to the second half of the interview that we've got with him, um, we thought we'd pause for a minute to discuss that little botanical mystery that he talked about. Yeah, and this was all about the Forsythia shrub. Now, this is something that I think most people have because it's a really easy to look after shrub um, with beautiful sprays of really vibrant yellow. Just that moment in early spring when we all really need a splash of colour. So really and truly, like you'll see it everywhere. Hedges of it, big arching long stems of it in all around gardens across the UK. Yeah, and each shrub could have thousands and thousands of flowers, couldn't it? So we sort of always presume that it must be a bonanza for for wildlife, really, especially some of the early flying bees and things that can be around, especially in a mild winter yeah just made that assumption Mm. yeah so the mystery is it's got all these flowers but certainly nick's research shows that it doesn't produce hardly any nectar at all and we've hardly seen anything on forsythia in gardens yeah we don't think we've ever seen a leaf even notched and eaten we don't think we've seen anything flying around the flowers so yeah, I guess uh, what we're asking you to do is when, well, have a look at your forsythias across the year. And if you do see something living in it, eating it, then please do let us know. Yeah, and we really want to know an answer to this question because lots of people, when they're talking about wildlife gardening, say extend the season, plant things that flower really early and really late. And quite often forsythia is a go-to plant for people. But if it's not got any nectar and if nothing's eating the leaves, then maybe it's a complete waste of your garden space at least in terms for wildlife but we're going to do a bit of our own citizen science here by asking you if you have a photo of anything that's visiting the flower of the forsythia you know if you've got a photo of a bee or a hoverfly or whatever it is please send it in to us because we'll collect all the photos together and we'll put them up online and we'll actually send them on to nick as well because i'm sure he'd be equally interested to know if his research is accurate and whether actually anything does visit it or not Yeah, get in touch, guys. And how can they do that? Well, you can go to facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast and you can post photos on there straight to us with a comment. Or you can do the same on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash the wild GDN. And finally, you can just send us an email 
to thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. And even if you're not telling us about your forsythia, we'd also love to hear from you about other things you're up to in your own garden. So yeah, get in touch, guys. Nice. So now we've introduced that little botanical mystery, we're going to go back to the second half of the interview with Nick. Yep. That gained huge traction this year and Nottingham is awash with cow parsley and <laughs> buttercups and daisies galore. It's really nice. Um, will your data feed into things like that you know, or can your data be applied to actually quantifying the benefit of that? I've got nectar data on a whole load of different plants. Um, I would say generally most of the kind of native road verge type plants, buttercups, clovers, cow parsley, or, you know, all those kinds of things, they were already measured by a previous postdoc in our group. So I think Plant Life have actually used that data right. from our group in previous years to look at, um, you can do like a nectar calculator for your lawn, I think, on, online and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I don't know if specifically my work will be um, involved with that, but I've definitely seen the benefits. Okay. Um, I was out in Western Supermare a few days ago, kind of walking around a leafy residential district, catching bees on, uh, on the road verges. That was sort of, yeah, I think it was right at the end of May, so it was <laughs> just before the mowing was probably going to happen. But um, I've definitely seen the benefits of it. And um, yeah, so hopefully it's uh, not just a kind of a little fad. I, yeah, I, did, I wasn't aware of the nectar calculator for people's lawns. So that's something that anyone can go and work out. I guess it's based on square meterage. Yeah, there's a, I think if you, I, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but basically you can put in which flowers are in your lawn and some estimate somehow of how many of them. Um, and then they'll give you like a nectar calculator and I think relate that back to the number of nice. bees it can feed and that kind of stuff yep. um, which is a really cool output um, it is because again you can look at a green sward you know just moan mm. and you can say well that's not really doing anything unless you've got a couple of daisies that happen to struggle through yep. but then comparing it with what you then get if you leave your lawn it's it's a really good tool for just saying to people look did you know if you left it it would feed this many pollinators and produce this much nectar yeah and i think particularly with pollinators people maybe don't always appreciate you know green space isn't inherently meaningful if there aren't flowers there and um if you walk through a short mown park or playing field which you know clearly has some uses and sometimes you do have to mow it short if you're playing football on it or something mm. but if you walk through a large green space that's very shortly mown that could as that, for a pollinator that may as well be concrete you know obviously there's other animals and um, plants that might be able to live in there but for a pollinator that may as well be concrete it doesn't really make a difference um, and that's where this mowing kind of regime letting flowers flower makes all the difference mm, yeah and it's interesting you said that the bee orchid was something that you'd spotted recently well i know for a fact from reading things online that a lot of people who haven't mown their lawn in may have actually had bee orchids come up where wow. they didn't previously know bee orchids were <laughs> so it just goes to show that you know nature is there or you know these plants are there yeah. lurking in the background just waiting for our management of the space to change i don't i don't know all the specifics of orchids but things can things can stay in the ground as seed and stuff for a very long time and yeah. just wait for the opportunity and if it's just birds for trefoil and white clover and daisies or buttercups it's still fantastic but yeah. if there's a chance of an orchid popping up that'd be amazing yeah it, oh, it would be the dream yeah you mentioned about your relaxed approach to non-natives 
and it was going to be a question of mine. So did you notice any differences between those you know, cultivated um, versus wild forms and then again versus non-native species in your research? Did you, did you look at that as a you know, criteria? <clears throat> it wasn't a specific question, but as I was measuring things, it was certainly something I was able to kind of have a think about. I mean, the non-native native is something I could talk about for hours, so I won't do. But I think it's, it's particularly good that you bring up cultivated versus not cultivated because people like to draw this distinction between natives and non-natives but with garden plants it often doesn't even really make sense what a native is and what a non-native is there's hybrids between natives and non-natives so it's hard to say what that is um and there's very cult you know very um modified cultivars of even native plants that to a pollinator might look like a non-native but technically might be cast as a native so when you're going through with a spreadsheet on your data for a journal article and trying to assign a native versus non-native category to things you realize what you're doing is very simplistic Often, I mean, it depends how something's been modified. So if something's been modified just to have bigger flowers, they can even have more nectar in than sort of the, the wild-type wild counterparts. If they've been modified to have lots of petals where there would have been nectaries, like some of the multi-petal roses or dahlias, then that's devoid of resources for pollinators. You have situations like with uh, carnation, the big fluffy carnation, where there is loads of nectar down there, and I've measured it, but pollinators can't possibly get to it because it's just blocked off with petals. So you sort of have every possible outcome. I guess the key thing is looking at a plant and thinking about if you're a pollinator, you know, could you actually feed from that plant or would it be impossible to get through? And then natives versus non-natives itself, there's no, I guess there's no inherent difference with some caveats, such as if you're a plant that's evolved for something like bird pollination, so hummingbird pollination, fuchsias, salvias, some of those kinds of plants, you might have bucket loads of nectar because birds drink a lot more than bees. So that affects... Um, the volume of nectar but also the concentration is a lot lower yeah um, so generally fuchsias have 20 to 30 percent sugar concentration but some of the more typically bee pollinated plants that might be 40 50 60 which in some way could affect the quality because bees generally like to have a higher sugar concentration diet but at the same time they visit fuchsia a lot so you know maybe they know what they're doing yeah. it's hard to say so i i don't yeah i don't think there's any particular reason to believe there's an inherent difference between natives and non-natives um, apart from these few situations where you might have a bird pollinated or bat pollinated or you know a plant like that 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 is radically different to what we have in the UK. Indeed I was actually so I've got an uncle living in Canada hi uncle Pete and (laughs) he recently posted on Facebook I didn't know Canada had hummingbirds I feel really naive about this. I think I think I did. Yeah I (laughs) I had no idea I think I just thought of them as being really tropical but yeah, where he yeah. is, is not very much not tropical. And it was feeding on a fuchsia flower, and mm. I thought that was really good to see. I should probably share that photo, actually. It was really fascinating. But it's, yes, I like what you just said about the insects know, well, you hope they know what they're doing. And I, I'm totally with that as well. You see a lot of people worrying about things, and actually, you know, they, they do find the food if it's there. That's the point. But think- it's up to us to observe whether or not they are actually, like you say, able to get access that food. But I mean, when it comes to access, bees are incredibly ingenious in terms of all the, you know, the ways they can rob flowers. Yes. There's almost no flower I've not seen that I know has nectar that I haven't seen bees drinking. Mm. So there's one called Lobelia tupa, which um, um, big bird pollinated Chilean Lobelia. My supervisor absolutely loves it. She got me to measure the nectar in the one in her garden just so she could know. And there's bucket loads there, but it's very tough to rob through the side. It's very sort of a yeah, hard structure on the side of the flower. And I've never seen a pollinator visiting it, visiting it, but 
some of the longer salvias and, and fuchsias, they'll just rub straight through yep. or they'll just climb straight in. Yeah, we talked about that in, well, a couple of essays, uh, floral larceny, which I just love that mm. name as well. And <laughs> we've got a salvia hot lips, which is yep. one of the microfillers in our garden. And, you know, I actually don't think I've ever seen anything go in the, the normal route, <laughs> if you like. It's always down the side, like making mm. a little hole. Sometimes you'll see the, so the Bombus terrestris, the buff-tailed bumblebee, yep. which has a shorter tongue, will often go in the side particularly aquilegia they just sit on the top of the flower and just drink yeah. out the top whereas sometimes something like the common carder bee or the garden bumblebee that have longer tongues will go in yeah. the legitimate way but you do sometimes see bumper stress just going in the right way so maybe it's just being lazy yeah, yeah i think there's <laughs> definitely something in that as well they again they know what they're doing it's, as long as they're getting the food it's when you when you start watching things up close i mean this field season this year i've started to see bees um taking honeydew off aphids um, on cherry trees and visiting cherry laurel to drink from the base of the leaves where you get the extra floral nectaries yeah and when you start to look really close bees are just do far more you know diverse behaviors than you expected yeah is there a difference in the quality of nectar as well in the same way that we know that there is with pollen because i know that anything in the fabiaceae or the, the, you know, the pea family mm. bean family is really good quality pollen like in terms of like what what it gives the insects is this is there a same similar distinction with nectar or yeah, not not to the same degree as pollen but there still is a bit so generally nectar is made up of sucrose fructose and glucose they're the three sugars uh, the ratio of that will vary and i think there's some evidence that different pollinators prefer a slightly different you know fructose to sucrose ratio all those kinds of things um there can then be some other sugars which are at lower concentrations which may be relevant to some pollinators there can even be trace amounts of amino acids and, and proteins which yeah. obviously pollen is generally the protein source but not all pollinators eat pollen so if you're a butterfly for example you only drink nectar maybe a few amino acids might be useful so there's there's subtleties in terms of nectar not just being sugar and water even within that the concentration of nectar sugar given that pollinators want a different you know ratio of water to sugar in their bodies depending on what taxon they are that can affect how attractive they are okay so i think if you do studies in the lab bees generally prefer a higher sugar solution to a lower one implying that that's better for them in some way yeah. but there's they still like junk food yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there's still, i mean there's yeah there's still a lot we don't know and then there's lots of interesting other complexities around things like toxins in pollen so um tobacco sorry um in nectar i should say so um tobacco nectar has nicotine in it there's some evidence that after a certain amount of time drinking that the pollinators then start to sort of feel the toxic effects of it awesome. so maybe it's a way of the plant to kind of say you've had enough time to move on to another flower wow. um, and there's a lot of this is quite there's a paper on that but a lot of this is kind of speculation but it's definitely nectar is is more complicated than perhaps people used to realize um but it doesn't have the same level of specialization um as pollen does so often pollinators will basically take nectar from a wide variety of plants just to keep themselves going keep themselves flying yeah. um, with energy but then specifically visit you know a family maybe even a genus for pollen yep that's really interesting we grow nicotiana in our garden and obviously that's it's night scented and it attracts the moths in so as well as the day flying insects have you looked at night scented plants as well in terms of pollen production i've met yeah i've measured nectar and things like nicotiana and um flocks uh, of jasmine honeysuckle as honeysuckle yeah. yeah but in terms of so i haven't got the data necessarily on pollinator visitation yet because i you know other people have done that kind of work but moths are definitely and nocturnal pollinators are definitely under studied you know for obvious reasons um but there's there's much more work happening recently and you can do things like metabarcoding of um pollen 
and that kind of stuff to see what they've been visiting even without having to actually observe them on a flower because obviously that's very difficult at night meta barcoding that sounds interesting so you take i'm actually going to be doing something hopefully with the data i get this year so you take a pollinator it's got pollen on its body and you take that pollen off and you identify what plants it came from but rather than looking through a microscope and spending hours you just pay some money and stick it into a sequencing machine and it tells you the plant profile uh, from the dna in the pollen amazing so that's that kind of new technology is allowing us to get these um food webs involving moths as well as the day flying pollinators and i think it's what's interesting is if you look at a plant that you never see a pollinator on i guess one question you need to ask yourself is you know is there a chance it might be really well visited by moths at night yeah and i just don't know that and it could be a really valuable plant for pollinators and you're working so hard in the day that you don't quite fancy doing it 24 hours a day like going out at night as well (laughs) no if it's i mean if it's your local garden and it's right there obviously you could kind of go for an evening walk and just see whether you can see a a pollinator visiting a plant but um in terms of getting scientific data as part of a phd or something it's it's clearly much harder to do the work at night yes indeed but it's definitely a missing yeah a missing piece of the puzzle and another thing that needs future study so you're a busy student i just wanted to know just as a more of an interest point whether or not you have a garden yourself or whether you get to look after a plot Mm. so i'm I'm at that difficult stage in life where you you're moving flats every year or two you're renting you have limited ability to have or to alter a garden um at the moment i'm i'm in a basement flat that has a really tiny little side garden but there's a communal front space by the bins that gets a lot more light than my side garden does so i've got some strawberries and i've got some you know some pansies and some nice sort of pretty standard flowers there um i've got lavatera and a few kind of bits and bobs going on there the side garden i've got a little just made a little uh, border because it's kind of a hard surface garden so i've made a little raised border with some uh, liatris and nasturtiums and things that are just about to come into flower i also have an allotment so that's been the sort of as i've moved around different places in bristol the allotment's been a bit more sort of stability in one place um i haven't given it the attention this year that i did last year because i just haven't had the time um and it's a sort of 20 minute cycle away or something so it's not right next door um but i've done yeah i've got I've built a pond on it and almost instantly within a month or two i got newts and now wow. i can find nine or ten newts in a little one by one meter pond kind of every time i go with a little net and seen dragonflies hatching out i've got um yeah plenty of sort of herbs and plants around it and obviously uh, veg as well so that's yeah. been particularly last year in lockdown when we were only allowed out for one form of exercise a day yeah for me it was go to the allotment all day yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of sit there read a book do some gardening listen to a podcast sounds amazing it was my yeah it was definitely kept me kept me going i feel like especially you know with your research even if you have a pot on a balcony yeah you can put something in it that is good for wildlife that wouldn't be there without your actions and i think that's a really positive like take home message you know from your research as well like if you actually put it i know everyone else says says this but build it and they will come yeah and it is so so true and that could be enough to keep you know a few bees going while they hop to a bigger garden nearby mm. it might be that lifeline that they actually need you just never know and w- one of my favorite things during my field work a couple of years ago in people's gardens was to go down a row of houses each of which had identical size and shape of garden and just to see what and you can do it without you know having to get kind of actually go into people's houses you can just look at front gardens everyone has exactly the same structure on a row of the same house and everyone's done something very different with it for some people it might just be where the you know the old washing machines sat there for months or a skip for some people it's just concrete for some people it's a complete wildflower paradise and when you start working out the nectar data like i did you see quite how much nectar you can get in such a tiny space um and it you know ultimately comes down to kind of 
what your motivations are and are you interested enough to to do that and even just one pot with the right plant in at the front can provide more good more more nectar than a massive back garden that's just a you know a short main lawn or that kind of stuff so you definitely don't need a big space i love that um, to do really, much with it that's really good and it that also leads into my final question i guess which is what are your top three tips for i guess wildlife gardening specifically because obviously you say you do garden yourself so what what would you think our listeners could do the top three things i mean it's it's hard to come up with ones that aren't just going to be uh repeating repeating what we've heard before i mean i think definitely something around diversity and what kind of scientists call sort of heterogeneity having lots of different habitats in one place you know and that habitat in a garden can obviously be a sort of really small version of a large habitat one shrub could be the sort of the scrubland type habitat that little lawn that you've let to grow a little bit more is your grassland maybe a little water feature and in a sense your garden can become like a sort of microcosm of a sort of an entire landscape just with a small example of each habitat because of course you know animals and plants they don't they don't necessarily need just resources from one particular area they um birds will need somewhere to nest and somewhere to feed and somewhere to drink and so to have all those different things in one garden um so you've got that diversity aspect um and you can take that on to look at even things like different types of flowers and and that kind of thing um i guess for pollinators particularly looking at seasonality so it's all you know it's great to have a big boom of flowers in the summer but if you can think about maybe having a mahonia that goes into october november december or um you know a cocker that provides a lovely scent and, and, and nectar in kind of january february that can extend the season for pollinators and also provide you with some far more enjoyment if you can see uh, winter active bumblebees foraging in i've seen them on christmas day on my parents mahonia every year yeah <laughs> and that's just fantastic to, to look at and i guess the final one maybe something like don't feel you have to be perfect don't be afraid to just give things a go it's yeah it's not about doing something perfect if you have a plant if you're interested in multi-petal roses that look really beautiful and you want them for cut flowers or whatever that's fine you don't have to do everything for pollinators but you can sort of offset that with something else um so that idea of yeah don't be afraid to fail and give things a go and maybe get a bit of stick from your neighbor and (laughs) that kind of thing yeah and just have fun with it i guess i like that yes that's a really good point to end on have fun with it and we do always try and get across that i think your garden is still yours yeah or your balcony or whatever space you have yeah, it's a bit of a and definitely what i've seen is this this idea of a very small space can be incredibly important for pollinators you know one shrub of the right species in a corner of the garden can provide more nectar than an entire garden that you know doesn't have that many flowers um and actually i've got some data currently under review to be published which which found that within 59 gardens in bristol varying in size from 30 square meters to 400 and something square meters garden area didn't actually correlate with the amount of nectar wow so we you know a, a much larger sample across a bigger span of gardens might have found that but within city gardens i didn't find that bigger gardens made more nectar because ultimately it could be that one little shrub in a tiny garden that makes far more nectar than yeah. a much bigger garden a and huge that lawn and that means if you want a sh- yeah if you want a short mown lawn because your kids are playing football or something that's that can still be compatible with a wildlife garden that has you know a very flower rich border that provides yeah, a huge amount of food for pollinators wow that's really really that's a good take home point as well i think yes so don't feel guilty if for whatever reason mm. if you have like a small garden because I, I quite often feel like i'm making an excuse about my garden because i'm like well it's really really tiny but we know from you know our night safaris and sitting out there for five minutes we just we get so many different things visiting it that i just yeah i think it is down to you know the actions that we've mm. taken i've seen a lot of planted. a lot of very big gardens that are useless you know for, for wildlife so a small garden can be yeah so much better if, if you manage it right 
Well, Nick, that was really, really good. I cannot thank you enough for coming out on your day off. <laughs> it is a very beautiful place. It's a beautiful thank place to be. And it well. It's been a lovely, yeah, lovely chat. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Cool. Well, I just want to say again, thank you so much to Nick Chu for coming and meeting me, taking his uh, taking time out of his day off. That was really lovely of him. And we're also going to put links to all of the papers that he talked about into our show notes. So if you want to read more information about his research and other people's related research, then do take a look at our, our show notes. Yeah, a lot of his papers are open access, so you can just go online and download them for free. Yeah, and I was also really relieved to hear that the, the quality of the recording wasn't as bad as I had imagined, because that was the first time we took our uh, interview equipment out into the field as such. Which Actually is, into a nature reserve, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't have technical Ben as my backup. <laughs> uh, you know, he, le- he left me with lots of instructions as very, to which, very button, strict instructions. which buttons to press and when. And anyway, <laughs> I'm really not the technological one here. Um, but yeah, it all went very well. And it, yeah, I was really pleased with how that sounded. Yes, and thank you very much to everybody who's donated to our GoFundMe, which is called Get the Wildlife Podcast Some Gear, because it's the gear that you're helping to fund that allows us to go out and do this sort of interview. So without you, we really couldn't do it. So if you'd like to drop us a few quid, it will be really helpful to the podcast, helps us pay for the equipment, for all the music, for the show, and helps us really keep going. To do that, follow links in the show notes. And given the amount of listeners we've got now, if just 10% of our listeners donated us a couple of quid in the next week, we'd be up to two thirds of the amount that we're hoping to raise over the year. Yes, thank you as ever, guys, for all your donations and generosity. So moving now on to our native plant of the week, and this time it is Potentilla fruticosa or the shrubby sinkfoil. One of my favourites. Yeah, well, this is one of my absolute favourites too. And we've got it in quite a few of the gardens that we look after. And I was, I knew it as a garden plant before I knew it, it was even a native wildflower, basically, a wild shrub. Um, but since finding out about that and finding out how good it is for wildlife as well, it's certainly something that I'd recommend for any gardener who could grow it. So going back to the name Potentilla fruticosa, it's not clear what the root of the word potentilla actually comes from but fruticosa i thought it had something to do with the fruits or maybe it meant something to do with the seeds but fruticosa actually means shrubby so anything that's something fruticosa means it's got a shrubby habit and that relates to its common name which is the shrubby sink foil and you can tell all the sink foils look vaguely similar because the name sink foil comes from sink or sink which is well, you're learning French at the moment. Means we. Oui. <laughs> no, it means five. Oh, sorry. I mean, <laughs> yes, I'm we. Oui, I'm learning French. <laughs> yeah. So I'll the, pay attention the, now. So the the, the, the sank means five, and the foil means leaf. Basically, so it's saying that a lot of the potentillas have five leaflets. Um, not all of the potentillas do, but it's a good way sometimes to tell the potentillas from the uh, buttercups because they've got quite a similar looking flower so if you look down at the leaf and it's got these five leaflets then you'll know it's one of the sink foils potentilla fruticosa is a deciduous flowering shrub which means it loses its leaves every year it grows to around a meter tall although in nature some plants can be much smaller they can grow quite close to the ground and there are lots and lots of cultivated varieties too which can be bigger 
it looks a bit twiggy over the winter, but in the summer it has these beautiful small pointed green leaves and it's smothered in yellow flowers, which are around two to three centimetres across. Again, in the cultivated varieties, the flowers can be bigger and they almost look like large buttercup flowers or even like strawberry flowers, but but in a yellow colour. And it's actually quite a rare native plant in the UK. We've Um, certainly never seen it. No, well, I'm going to come on. There's only a handful of places that you can go and see it, but it is highly cultivated. So there's loads and loads of garden varieties you can choose from. And and as we've said, it's it's certainly one of my all-time favourite garden shrubs. So in Britain, this species is found only in Upper Teesdale and in Cumbria, where it grows up to about 700 metres above sea level. So in Teesdale, it actually grows around rivers and riverbanks. So it's found in the cracks between boulders, on small islands in the river, or on silt or shingle riverside banks as well. But in contrast, in Cumbria, so in the Lake District, really, it's what's called a montane plant, which means it grows on mountain screes and cliffs. Although these seem like very different habitats, it's quite a similar setup, really, as in both situations, there's got plenty of sort of loose rock for the roots to, to grow into. And you know, in the Lake District, as anybody who's visited will know, there's plenty of rain. <laughs> and, you know, that keeps the, the the roots moist in the same way as a riverbank would so, as well. So they need a loose soil, which will be well-drained, but they don't like to like particularly dry out. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, as I've said, it's quite rare in the UK. And part of the reason why that is, is because it relies on quite a specific habitat. And where it grows by rivers it relies on the river flood you know when it's in spate to scour a lot of vegetation off the banks which which stops it from competing or being out competed by the vegetation as well and you know when the rivers are in flood they also deposit a lot of silt and they like to grow in that silt too Mm. so the, the sad thing is that many of our rivers now are so controlled though that this sort of deposition of silt and the the scouring of this flood flow doesn't really happen certainly on a lot of the more controlled rivers and it's thought that the damming of the teas at a place called cauldron snout which is a a great place for a name um (laughs) apparently i've never been there but apparently there is a dam there and a lot of the plants behind the dam are really struggling because you know the the dam is affecting the way this this flood water goes down the river but aside from the UK, Potentilla fruticosa has an absolutely enormous range, probably the biggest range of any plant we've talked about so far. So it goes from Japan all the way through the Himalayas to the Urals, the Baltics, and then actually the UK and across to North America, extending all the way from Alaska down as far wow. south as Mexico. That is huge. What was the word you used to describe the uh, the general range when you were talking about native plants? The- oh, so anything in... So the Palearctic. Palearctic. So this is a yeah. true Palearctic yeah, range, but it, but I guess. Yeah, but there's, uh, I've forgotten the name for it now, but North America is another another region. Okay. So yeah, it's, good, it's, it's over several of these really, really large scale regions. Yeah. But wherever it is, this shrub, it tends to grow in places, like we've said, that are sort of constantly moist at the root, but they're well lit. They don't really like to grow in shade. And they also grow in what's called base rich soils. And I thought I'd describe this a bit because you, you hear it sometimes in, in people talking about what, what soils plants like. Now basically, a base-rich soil is a soil high in alkali ions, so things like calcium and magnesium in particular. Because they're alkali ions, the soils that they're in tend to be alkaline. So base-rich soils tend to be alkaline or neutral in pH. And it, it's a bit more complicated than that. You can get um, acidic soils, which are 
base rich as well but yeah it just shows the sort of the sort of soil that they naturally like to grow in so with that description of the plant over and done with it's time to get on to the good bits which are the sexual antics of the shrubby sink foil Okay, so we've described that Potentilla fruticosa grows all across the northern hemisphere, and over that range, it's actually quite sexually variable. So, in the UK, all the plants are tetraploid, which means that they have four sets of chromosomes, and we've talked about this with other plants before. But elsewhere in the world, they're diploid, and even in some populations, possibly octoploid. Wow. Yeah, eight sets of chromosomes. So um, selfish of them. Why would they need so many chromosomes? <laughs> Well, the the number of chromosomes changes the structure of the flower, um, which is also called the morphology of the flower. So in diploid plants, so these are the ones with two sets of chromosomes, so these don't grow in the UK. In the diploids, the flowers are hermaphrodite, so they have both the male and female parts, whereas all the tetraploid plants, the ones that do grow in the UK, are actually dioecious, which means they're a separate male and female plants. And this is actually the same as in the Fragraria, which are the strawberries. So the wild diploid species of strawberries are hermaphrodite, and the wild tetraploid species of strawberry are dioecious. So that's exactly the same. And in fact, they're actually quite closely related. And if you look at the flower of Potentilla and of strawberries, you can see they're very similar. And hybrids have been made between strawberries and Potentillas, which are apparently quite vigorous. So plants flower in the wild between May and September and because they're dioecious they absolutely do require pollination by insects and from the research I've read apparently this is largely done by the diptera in particular so that's the flies but also the hymenoptera which are the bees the wasps the ants and the sawflies and the coleoptera which are the beetles. When pollinated, the British and Irish plants tend to set seed quite freely and each of these flowers will become a a seed head with around 20 to 70 seeds per capsule, which are shed in the autumn and they basically lie dormant over the winter and germinate in the spring. But although the seeds are spread quite easily, from people who've gone out, botanists who've gone out and looked at the plants, apparently seedling establishment is actually quite rare in the wild. And where you get these large colonies of the plants, it's more likely to be down to them layering their stems. So that's when the stems fall onto the floor or grow near the floor and they they send roots out along the stem. And if those roots are detached from the the parent plant, they become new plants in their own right. So they favour asexual reproduction in that way? just layering it's, it's going yeah, to be a I clone think, isn't it obviously if it's i don't layered. know if they favor it but it might just be to do with where they grow so imagine if you get lots of flood water come down and it deposits loads of silt right in the middle of the plant you know where it's covering a lot mm. of the stems they might root along you know actually in that soil that's dumped in the middle of the plant so it might just be it just happens to grow in that situation yeah is dictating it yeah yeah so going back to the beginning i said that this plant is really really good for wildlife and the reason why I've picked this plant today is well it's flowering in gardens right now but actually going back to our last episode where we talked about the work of Dr Jennifer Owens she produced a list of the top 15 plants in her garden which hosts the most moth and butterfly caterpillars and at number five on this list was potentilla fruticosa Ooh, excellent yeah so it's number five in her top plants for moths and these include species like the dot moth and the feathered thorn i've never even heard of the feathered i thorn am 
imminently going to pick up our moth identification book so i'm going to be looking those up this afternoon we're getting it today today this is this is a big day in our world yeah we're getting two books because <laughs> there's that and the field guide to insects of great oh, britain as well i don't know how we've lived without both of them <laughs> Um, I, can I just interject and say I also found last it was actually this winter just gone a postantilla which obviously was um, this is because it was in like quite a sheltered area as well but I found five I think clusters and they really were little clusters of seven spot ladybirds hidden away hibernating or overwintering sorry over on a postantilla. That's really interesting because when you look at these databases of interactions they tend not to include um, species that rely on it as shelter just as a physical structure so you never see spiders on there or you never see ladybirds that's really interesting yeah, yeah. They, were, they were just all huddled together apart from one which was by itself which i just assumed smelt bad and the others <laughs> didn't want to be its friends well ladybirds do apparently smell really horrible there you go yeah so, <laughs> so yeah aside from those species that actually eat the leaf as a food the flowers are visited by lots of different species. Pollen and nectar are taken by the common furrow bee and also the marmalade and the lesser banded hoverflies too. So where would this go in your garden if you wanted one? It's great as part of a shrub planting. There's loads of different sizes. So some are really small and would do well in a rockery or something like that. And some are, are big, well over a metre tall and across. So they make a good statement in a shrubbery. But again, also great as part of a herbaceous border because they flower forever it seems you know some of the varieties they basically although they say they start flowering in may like they can flower right at the beginning of may and keep going through to september october time even yeah you get a, a lot of bang for your buck with one of these they really need somewhere in full sun they say it can grow in partial shade but really you still need quite a good amount of light during the day and ideally you want to put it in this is what the rhs call it moist but well-drained soil so ah, the holy grail of gardening <laughs> yeah, exactly so what that's saying is it doesn't completely dry out but also it just doesn't sit waterlogged so what you need is perfect soil that's yeah, what perfect they're saying <laughs> soil. perfect garden loam yeah <laughs> no it's not it's really not that fussy but in the wild it's quite happy to be waterlogged over the winter because again these flood waters from the rivers come down but it doesn't want to be waterlogged in the summer so if you've got really wet soil permanently wet soil in the summer maybe don't put it in that situation but yeah basically if you've got a chalky a loamy soil uh, a a clay soil but that's had lots of compost to improve it then that would be fine Um, a sandy soil again would be fine but just remember to keep it watered and one thing to note is that the shrubs are known to flower better if the roots are kept moist. They flower for a longer period. If you can remember to keep it watered in a dry period, then it will perform better for you. In terms of the pH, it will grow, as we've said, in alkaline soils, base-rich soils, and neutral soils quite happily. But it will also grow in sort of fairly mildly acidic soil, so nothing too extreme on the acid side, but a really quite wide range. And also, it's hardy. It's super, super hardy. It's fine as low as minus 20 degrees C. And, you know, obviously, it grows in Greenland and in the Himalayas (laughs) and also down in Mexico. So, yeah, in terms of climatic conditions, it's it's quite tough. I love those tough plants. So easy. Yeah, and actually, this makes quite a a good variety for an informal hedge as well. If you want to sort of separate two areas of the garden, you could just plant a row of these. And they'll look absolutely fantastic and flower over such a long period, like we said. You can sort of keep them a bit clipped. They're not, you can never get, achieve like a formal look, but certainly you can, you know, tidy them up if you like. I hate using that phrase, yeah. but you can sort of, yeah, just make them a bit more shaped. Than That's they right. They be. are quite 
twiggy and a bit straggly but you can just clip them over early in the spring because they'll be flowering from may to september they've got time after you've clipped them to uh, to still grow those flower buds so if you want to grow one at home it's not a species that we recommend going out and collecting the seed because as i said it's quite rare in the wild and i've also looked online for seed and you can't really get it so instead go and get yourself one of the cultivated ones so you can go down to a garden center you could buy them online Or if you've already got one and you want more, they actually grow very easily from layering or from hardwood cuttings, which you take in the autumn and winter, or by softwood cuttings, which you can take in July. And apparently from my reading, it seems like softwood cuttings are more likely to take than hardwood cuttings. We can't go into the detail of how to take all those cuttings, but we will put into the show notes links to softwood and hardwood cuttings and to layering as well with articles from the RHS. There's loads of these different cultivars and there really is something that's going to suit a colour scheme, whatever your colour scheme is in your garden, and whatever size you've got as well. There's a low creeping variety, so it basically grows almost flat to the ground, which again would be good like trailing over a rock in a rockery, something like that, and that's called Medicine Wheel Mountain. It's a very odd name. Yeah, I don't know where that name came from at all, but um, there's another one, a small variety called Floppy Disc. Okay, another weird name. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what floppy disk, for those of you who remember floppy disks, I don't know what they've got to do with uh, strawberry seed foils, but there you are. And yeah, this floppy disk one will grow only to about 35 centimetres tall, and I think it would do just fine in a pot, really. Mm. For taller varieties, either you know, you're growing as a freestanding shrub, or if you want to grow it as a part of a herbaceous border, there's classic yellow ones like King Cup. Which is also a drinking game. <laughs> These names are all really weird. <laughs> oh, well, the, ne- the next ones are more descriptive of what they are. So, like I said, regarding colour, there's a range from pure white through primrose yellow to bright oranges and deep reds. And you can, you can tell which ones these are. So you could go for varieties like Pink Beauty, Hopley's Orange, which is a beautiful sort of burnt orange colour, mm. Marion Red Robin, that's a deep, deep red, that one. And also Groenland and Abbotswood are pure white, and they've got a, a still, all of these tend to have a yellow centre, but they're pure white petal. There's a colour to suit almost any colour scheme, and like I said, we'll put links to everything that we've described into the show notes, so you can go ahead and pick a variety that will suit you at home. One of the main problems I'm finding with our native plant of the week is that being a gardener, and I think this is endemic amongst gardeners, I now just want to go out and buy everything we're talking about. <laughs> but if you should, if you saw our garden, there is not a square centimetre of space that is left. I Potent want one though. I am desperate for one because I think they are the most beautiful shrub. And people have these national collections, you know, where they have every variety of something. And if I was going to have a national collection, I think it would probably be something like that. Yeah, I just love them so much. They're really cheery. <laughs> Don't talk about my floppy disk on the radio. <laughs> oh dear, I feel like that's a good place to end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, well, that's it for today, really. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, we've got nothing to add, have we? No. That's it. So um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Keep the reviews coming. Please do get in touch say we're on twitter facebook or you can just email us directly but until the next time then all that's left to say is keep gardening and goodbye bye